the pod is back. This is episode one of season four. Super thankful that you guys are still with us. I appreciate you giving me the space to have a couple months at the end of the year to, to get all the work done that I needed to do. But we are back um, 2024. We're going to try to replicate what we did. I think it was in 2021 where we had 100 plus episodes in the season. I've already got 60 outlined. This year's going to be crazy. Let's get after it. I'll see you guys in the show. Welcome to My Take, a show where I give you guys my insights on the health and fitness industry, how I think about business, some of the lessons I've learned throughout my life, and a little bit of everything in between. Hope you guys enjoy the show. Super excited to be back in the studio. This is the first episode of season four. Um, First off, thank you guys so much for continuing to tune in. I know we took a couple uh, months hiatus, really just had a bunch of business stuff we had to focus on to just kind of get us through, you know, our busiest kind of peak part of the year, Black Friday, New Year's, just preparing for all that. Um, We're kind of in the tail end of that now. So we've got a lot more bandwidth. Uh, We spent a lot of the last year just kind of building our team putting a ton of systems and processes in place and trying to trying to spend a lot more time working on the business versus in the business, which just, just took a totally different mindset approach, way more time than I could have thought it would take, really had to pour a lot of time into other people. Um, so now we've got a little bit more bandwidth to kind of bring back the podcast. And I didn't want to start season four and, and drop one or two episodes and then abandon it. So I've got the next 60 episodes basically outlined. Um, we're going to try to drop you know, three or four a month. So hopefully at least one every week for the next year. Uh, But season four, we're actually going to go back to the original format of the show um, where we got the nutrition insights, business insights, what am I learning today? The daily win um, is is really what we're going to focus on. And so super excited to bring back the show. We've got a a great kickoff for uh, season four. A bunch of really fun topics we're going to talk about today. Um, and super excited. So let's just dive into it. We're going to start off with the nutrition insights. This is actually, this went really under the radar. Um, there was a study that was published in December from a, a call. I don't know if we're colleagues, but um, we've done a podcast together before. This was seven, eight years ago, probably. Um, and this author, he contributed to my old blog at Science Driven Nutrition, which that that is a a throwback. Um, I still have all those articles. Most of them are on the MacroZinc website. But uh, a, a scientist, researcher, colleague of mine, Jorn Tromelin, um, he has done a ton of very impressive work in the metabolism space. Uh, he started his career focusing more on um, carbohydrate metabolism. So a lot of his really early work was in kind of glucose and fructose metabolism. And then he joined a very prominent lab that does protein metabolism, um, Luke Van Loon's lab. And they have done some really incredible work on protein metabolism. And I can't state enough how good the work that this author has done over the last, let's call it decade of his career. And today we're going to focus on this paper that came out. It was in Cell Reports, which if you are a exercise physiologist slash nutrition researcher, and you get a paper published in a journal like Cell Reports, that is a massive accomplishment. Like that's generally where um, 
the top 0.1% of papers get published, like Cell, Cell Reports, Science, Nature. Like it's that level of journal. And so to see this study, which we're going to talk about in a second, published there is pretty remarkable. So I was excited for him as an author, and I'm really excited that we get to talk about this paper because this filled a lot of really interesting gaps in our understanding on protein metabolism. There was a lot of things that we kind of... um like filled in the gaps based on the information we had that we kind of projected of like, hey, here's what the early stuff found. Here's what we think's happening. This study really kind of filled in the gaps. So this paper called The Anabolic Response to Protein Ingestion During Recovery from Exercise Has No Upper Limit in Magnitude and Duration in Vivo in Humans. So the, the title kind of says it all. But before we jump in to the details of this study. And this was a very big study. Um, I'm just going to break down the basics and I'm going to try to get Jorn on the show um, to see if we can kind of just chat through the details and have it uh, as a follow-up show. But before we jump into the details, the context of this study, where it fits into the landscape um, and why it's so important. So if we look at really understanding single meal protein metabolism and how it affects recovery and muscle growth. Most of the really important work on that has been done over the last 15 years. And it kind of started out, I'd say the first really good, high quality study uh, was probably the 2013 Areta study where they basically fed people either 10 grams of protein at a time in very small meals, like 10 times a day. It was maybe 8 to 12, somewhere in that range. I don't have the study pulled up. Or they gave them 20 grams of protein um, at like four specific intervals. Um, so it would have been 10, 8 times a day, 20, 4 times a day, or 40 twice a day, as I'm pretty sure what that study was. And they looked at what optimized muscle protein synthesis. So basically a surrogate marker of muscle repair, growth, accretion, whatever word you want to use. And in that study, they basically found like, hey, what was optimal there was about 20 grams a day spaced out evenly appeared to have a larger net effect on muscle protein synthesis over the course of a day than the bolus every couple hours, every six hours or so, or the, the smaller amounts every day. And kind of what the thought process that that study sparked was, hey, 10 grams a day is probably not, or 10 grams at a time, very frequently, probably doesn't give us enough of a stimulus to get over kind of the, the threshold of accretive muscle protein synthesis. Conversely, the 40 grams is probably, that may be on the upper limit of what we can process in a given meal and we start to kind of get limited returns over 20, 25, 30 grams. So we probably want to try to stick to, you know, 20 to 40 multiple times a day versus large boluses. It's kind of what the gaps, the things that we couldn't definitively say from that study, that's kind of what it hinted at. Um, so that was in 2013. In 2016 and in 2019, there was two more studies done. But this looked at specifically that large bolus, like, hey, is that 40 really kind of where it starts to cap out or, or what is it? And so the 2016 study was done by a group, um, Kim et al., it was 2016, 
that study, they fed people 0, 40, or 70 grams. Um, and they kind of showed like, hey, 70 grams, we actually get a little bit more than 40, um, but it may not be like double, right? Um, and then Jorn and his group did another study as a follow-up kind of to that to look at 0, 20, and 40. And they actually showed like, hey, if we actually do a very well-controlled study, we use isotopes where we can basically label the amino acids radioactively. It's not really harmful for us. It's just radiation is a totally different subject. But um, if we label them and can actually like follow them through the human body, this was his 2019 study, at zero grams of protein, 20 grams of protein, or 40 grams of protein in a single meal, up to 40, we, we continue to see muscle protein synthesis. So this idea of like 20 to 30 grams being the max that you can consume in a single meal is probably not correct. So this paper that was published is a follow-on to really those three studies. And I think what this study is going to do, and we're going to talk, we're going to dive into the details in a second, is this kind of helps us forecast into a different frame of thinking about protein metabolism in the human body. So this study, what they did, and this was really interesting. So they fed people 0 grams of protein, 25 grams of protein, or 100 grams of protein. Now, they used a milk-based protein. There's a lot of details that we can talk about. Um, but what they did was they fed them 0, 25, and 100 grams of protein. And then they followed them for six hours, and they tracked their plasma levels of amino acids, a bunch of different types. They looked at their, um, basically, their muscle protein synthesis rate. They looked at how much protein was appearing in plasma. Like, they did a very thorough study. And what was super interesting about this is they not only... So, the consumed source of protein, so what they ate, they actually radioactively labeled that by infusing cows with amino acids that were labeled. So, when the cows made the milk that they then distilled down to the protein for the study so they could track what was eaten... And then they did isotopically infused um, amino acids in an IV. So they could actually inject some in their plasma, track how much of that amino acid that's in your kind of amino acid pool at that point versus what you consume. What is the relative contribution to muscle tissue based on the signal you get from the food and what's available in your body? So they could actually track how the free amino acid pool in your body and what is endogenously consumed contributes to muscle protein synthesis and plasma appearance rate of protein and basically all the things that you would care about at these individual um, intakes of protein, 0, 25, and 100. That's a very complicated study to do, and they did a very good job with it. And it was a kind of a genius design for how they did it. So... They tracked these people for six hours, kind of post-protein consumption. And what they found was that protein synthesis and pro net protein balance, so in the muscle tissue, was highest in the 100 grams. So there was actually a stepwise, almost dose-response increase for 0, 25, and 100. Now, could they have done like 50 to 60 to fill in the gaps? Maybe they should have done that, but that would have been a lot more expensive. And I don't know if it would have added much additional knowledge because we kind of have seen the 40 to 
70 gram range, and they wanted to see what is the next level of what we can learn. And so what was very interesting about that was not only, hey, is this 100 grams in a single meal is now the highest amount we've ever done, and it shows that we continue to see almost dose response increases in muscle protein synthesis at this much higher intake than we ever previously thought. And one of the most interesting findings was that at six hours post-consumption, it was still going up. So it wasn't like it had peaked and then dropped off. Like it was still increasing. And I think they show this in, I'm trying to find the figure here. Um, at figure, if you guys pull up the paper, it's figure four, um, panels G, H, and I'll even say I, because that's kind of the, the protein-bound enrichment, is it, it's continuing to climb with the 100, where it's starting to kind of plateau at 25, which means you've probably maximized the total amino acid pool available from that food in the 25 at six hours, but at 100, it's still going up. So that's where this title is, has no upper limit in magnitude and duration in vivo from humans. Um, now, quick caveat, I should have said this at the beginning, but this is post-exercise. So this is not just any meal. This is kind of a, a post-exercise state. So what was really interesting about the next piece is what, what has been canonically thought of or kind of accepted in the literature is about 10% of the proteins you consume is actually added to your muscle tissue. And this is based on a series of studies. There's not one study really that gave us this information before now. It was based on a series of studies that they kind of cobbled together the information. Um, and it was fairly accurate for what we knew at the time. And I think this was a paper from Stu Phillips' lab. Um, I'd have to go back and look. But they basically said, hey, about 10% of all of the protein that you consume from a meal, 10% or less, depending on the protein source, ends up in your muscle tissue as like net muscle protein. Um, in this paper what they actually found was that um, they tracked these people throughout a six-hour period, and it starts out at about 10%, but over time, that continues to go up. So over the six hours, it went from like 12 to 15 um, to 18, and that was just with the 25 grams, right? So you can imagine at the 100 grams, you're going to have, if it's the same percent, you're going to have more total amount. Um, but if you have more around, you may actually see a higher percentage, right? We don't know that for sure because the study didn't quite give us that insight. Um, but you actually get much more than 10%. It may be up to 20, 25 because after, after they stopped tracking it, um, it was still, it looked like it was still going up from what I could see. What's also interesting is a lot of it ends up in p circulation. So like postprandial amino acids end up in circulation. So if let's just say 20, 25% is maybe where that number shakes out of what ends up in your muscle tissue. Quite a lot ends up in circulation. So that means it's getting used for, for other things. Um, so th the next piece is, and this is what was another interesting finding and what I thought was really genius about the study design is they could actually tell, like if you consume 0, 25, or 100, 
the amino acids that end up in like your tissue, so your muscle tissue, and then what ends up actually like not just in your muscle cells, but added to kind of your contractile elements of your skeletal muscle, they could measure how much is coming from like the plasma, so like your endogenous amino acid pool, versus what was consumed from your food. And over the course of the six hours, at 25 grams of protein, about 89% um, came from your endogenous amino acid, so from the plasma. So a lot of that kind of net protein is actually coming from amino acids that are already in your body, and about 10 11% was from what was consumed in your food. At 100 grams of protein, it was about 70% from your plasma amino acids and 30% from your exogenous or your consumed amino acids. So that's super interesting just based on the fact that as you increase above that 25, so you got a 50, 70, 100 is what we have data for here is you're actually starting to pull more from the food than you're pulling from circulation. So what it, what my take, huh, that's the title of the podcast, um, what my take on this is is that when you consume any amount of protein, the insulin response, the just protein response to your body kicks off kind of the, the net protein balance state where you start to take amino acids into your tissues. But a very small fraction of that is what you consume. It's your body is now being in a fed state, so it starts pulling the free amino acids from your blood, and it actually uses more of that because it knows what it's what's coming into your through your gut into circulation can then replace that. So it's kind of a it's just a signal to say, hey, we have more amino acids coming in, let's pull those. But when you have super high intakes of protein, which is a hundred grams in this case, um, your body can actually pull from the food because you have so much coming in. And it's probably more likely because you have more amino acids that are going to be sustained higher longer because you have a hundred grams more is coming from the food that's being added to your muscle tissue. So this paper really adds a whole nother layer of understanding of protein metabolism, especially post-exercise, and what is the largest single meal you can consume and have it be kind of net accretive uh, to your muscle protein, kind of that um, muscle protein synthesis. So this really kind of blows open a whole new kind of paradigm of thinking about post-exercise, single-meal protein consumption. Now, there are a lot of caveats to this. One, this is very acute. So we don't know if this actually makes a difference over the long term. Like, is 100 grams in post-meal or post-exercise meal more effective at actually adding muscle size over extended periods? We're not quite sure. We don't really know. That's going to take a long time to figure that out. Um, Two... Is muscle protein synthesis the rate-limiting factor for muscle growth? I still don't think, like, if, is that biochemical measure really the, the rate-limiting step for people growing muscle? Maybe it's overall recovery, right? Maybe it's total calories. Maybe it's like we don't, this doesn't answer that question. Um, the other piece to this is just because you have, you can consume that much doesn't mean you should. 
I think that's a highly individualized answer, right? To me, this paper, like if I'm a 240-pound bodybuilder who's probably on large amounts of, uh, let's call it pharmaceutical help, this data is probably like, hey, I can consume this much and it's probably not as wasteful as I used to think it was in a single meal. If I'm a 150-pound um, you know, endurance athlete who just wants to maintain the muscle mass they have, this probably doesn't really change the way I fuel myself, right? So there's a lot of context in here. The other aspect of this is, because I posted this study in our uh, Macros Inc. group, and a lot of people made the comment of, hey, like just because you can do this, you know, consuming that amount of protein in one sitting is going to be really harmful for your kidneys. So this is a very interesting topic, and I have a talk on this. This data may, um, I don't know if this data per se, but this paper per se may change a little bit of what I have in that, but not a ton. Single meal amino acid handling is fairly well understood in um, the kind of kidney literature. So I did my postdoc in a, in a kidney lab. And one of the really interesting things is in an otherwise healthy person with normal functioning kidneys, postprandial amino acid handling, what it essentially does is you get a large increase in what we'll call glomerular filtration rate, right? So that is how much your kidneys are filtering stuff. And this is this phenomenon is called hyperfiltration. And we've known about this since, God, I think it's probably the late 80s. Um, I, think it was, I think it was Brenner who published that in the New England Journal of Medicine um, in like a big review article where he kind of laid this, this idea out. I have, I have the book around here somewhere. I'll have to pull it out. Um, but whenever you consume any meaningful amount of protein, right, 20 grams, 40 grams, 100 grams, the filtration of amino acids through your kidneys goes up. And this is completely normal. This happens at every protein meal. And then it returns to baseline, right? That's just the way it works. Um, it works this way in humans. It works this way in other animals. And what's really interesting is we learn most of our kidney physiology from other animals, um, from these uh, basically micropuncture studies. But that's a normal process. Now, what we do know is at 20, 40, 50, 60 grams in a single meal, that spike, that hyperfiltration that goes back to normal doesn't cause any issues. 100 grams, it's most likely the same, but we don't know for sure. So we'll have to do some studies at that high of intake because I'm not aware of any studies that have fed people 100 grams of protein in a single sitting um, and looked at filtration and does it return to baseline and how much longer does it you know, maintain uh, this kind of hyperfiltrative state. Now, what's interesting is People who have um, diabetes and have kidney issues or have any other sort of kidney issues, specifically in diabetes, that hyperfiltrative state postprandial sustains longer and actually can end up causing some issues. So um, if you have pre-existing conditions, probably consuming 100 grams in a single meal is probably not going to be great for your kidneys, whether you have kidney disease or you have an established metabolic issue, right? If you have type 2 diabetes, 
I personally wouldn't recommend consuming 100 grams of protein in a single meal post-exercise. If you're otherwise healthy, um, so far the data suggests it's probably net neutral, um, but we don't have the data to confirm that. We'll have to do confirmative studies, especially if we start to see this ever being utilized in practice. Now, when I think about the work that I've done with with athletes, kind of the current athletes I work with, with my clients that I've worked with over the the last decade or so of my career is, I can't think of many athletes in which I would say every post-workout, you need to have 100 grams of protein. Because for most people, I mean, unless I have a 250-pound NFL uh, football player, they're probably going to need four, five, six meals a day for total calories. And if I'm pushing 30% of all their protein intake into one meal, that may end up happening, but that's probably going to be less frequent, right? So I think about uh, my basketball players that I work with right now. Let's just say the average is, you know, a 6'6", 200-pound, 220-pound, 190-pound, somewhere in that range, depending on the body type. Um, athlete, right? I'm going to try to get them probably 200 to 225 grams of protein a day. And that's going to be over five to six meals. So I probably don't need them to consume this much. Now, if they have a day where maybe they've got a big lift in the morning and they have practice four hours later and they don't have time to get another meal in between their post-practice shake, let's call it, or or post-lift meal and then practice... I may now be like, hey, if we can push 80 to 100 in that shake because you're not going to eat for the next four hours and then you have practice, this may be like, hey, instead of it being at 40 to 60, I may push it to 60 to 80 for some people. So this is a really interesting study. It opened up a lot of really interesting uh, findings and actually kind of teaches us a lot more about just normal human amino acid metabolism. So um, hope you guys enjoyed that. If you guys have any questions, comments, um, want any more analysis on any of the specific parts of the study, uh, just shoot me an email uh, and I'd be happy to either talk about it on the next episode or reply to you via email. It's just brad.deter at macrozinc.net. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back to the business insights. All right, let's jump into the business insights. Um, This is more of maybe a reminder to me uh, than it is maybe a note for everybody else. But I I think it's important, um, and I think you guys may get some value out of it. So I've I've been doing coaching, online coaching, running online coaching businesses, in person coaching um, since 2010. So that is, this is year 13. Um, that I've been doing this essentially as my career. I mean, I was doing research as part of it, but I've kind of always done this, um, overseeing thousands, tens of thousands of clients. And I had a conversation with um, a, a person who's been a coach for five or six years, and they were just kind of talking about like, hey, I'm maybe starting to experience a little bit of burnout. Like, it's just, I feel like my career is going to be doing the same thing with clients every single day. And it reminded me of a conversation that I heard on a podcast um, a couple months ago. And I just, I kind of tried to shift the perspective on the conversation of like, 
the fact that you know that your career is going to be doing very similar things with people for the next 30, 40 years should be a a very powerful, motivating idea because you are fortunate enough that you get to play an infinite game for your career, right? You don't have a job where it's like, You do one thing and then you're done. You don't get to continue to build the same skills in the same area. Um, Every day that you get to play this game, you get a little bit better. You level up your skills. You gain more experience, more wisdom. You add value to your kind of your coaching stack. And the game you're playing is infinite. So you get to play this game for the rest of your life. No, there's a lot of careers where people don't get to do that, right? And that's a very powerful perspective to have. It's like, hey, every time I work with a client, I'm basically just leveling up. I don't know if you guys ever played video games, but you know how there's the the like the farming stage where it's like you're just doing all these things to get experience points so you can level up and be a better version of your character. That's the game you're playing. Um, and if you think about it, the people who are the best at what they do in the whole world. They're playing infinite games, right? Like think about the the world-class surgeon who's done, you know, 5,000 heart transplants. I don't know if there's any if there's any heart surgeons who've done that. Then that may not be an achievable number based on volume of surgeries in a year. But like by the time they do that 4,000th, 5,000th heart surgery, think about all the tiny skills they've picked up, all the nuances of different things and situations they've been in and like, they're now the master of their craft because they've experienced everything because they're playing an infinite game, right? They're not like, oh, I'm going to do 100 heart surgeries, then I'm going to go do 100 brain surgeries. They're like, I'm playing the infinite game. Same thing with like the world's best entrepreneurs and business leaders and you know self-help people. Like They're playing an infinite game. And so whenever I get to the point where I'm like, okay, we're going through another you know, New Year's cycle and we're getting ready for all the people to come back to, to coaching and we're kind of gearing up and we're getting ready to do all our continuing eds for the year and like, I got to do the books again. Like, I always have to remind myself, like, you're very fortunate to be playing an infinite game and you get to play this game if you want for the next 20, 30 years. So as long as you can learn to enjoy the process of the infinite game, it'll really shift your perspective. It's sort of like... Let's say you're going on a 15-mile hike to the top of a mountain. You've got two choices. You can either decide you really enjoy walking, or you can decide I'm only going to enjoy the view at the summit, right? If you only enjoy the view at the summit, the seven and a half miles to the top is going to be pretty miserable. But if you enjoy the process of walking and what you see along the way and just the process of getting to do that and be with your thoughts and enjoy nature, like just the process, the process is much more enjoyable. So whenever you can, try to play infinite games. And whenever you can, try to reframe your perspective of you are playing an infinite game. So that's the business insight. Um, We'll take another quick break and we'll jump into our last session.
All right. Uh, last session of episode one of season four of the pod. We've got what am I learning today? The daily win and the daily learning lesson. Uh, what am I learning today? This is something that I have to constantly remind myself of is stability is a false hope. And this is something, you know, I feel like is maybe more acutely felt by, you know, people who are entrepreneurs or self-employed or, you know, whatever. Um, But I also think about this with my clients because I've had this conversation with clients a lot. You know, we all have this idea of what we really want is things to be stable and to be the same all the time because it's it's easy, it's comfortable, you wake up, you know what's going to happen, you can plan for the future, etc. But if you really think about it is that is a, it's a kind of a false hope and a little bit of a fuel, uh, fuel's errand, a fool's errand because the only thing that's guaranteed in life is change, right? If you're in, if you're in the business world, the economy is always going to be changing, either good, bad, left, right, up, down. You can't really predict it. I mean, you can maybe, maybe predict it. You can guess, and then you get right, and you say you predicted it. Um, you can try to guess changes in consumer behavior, but you can't really know for sure. You you can adapt to what's happening. You can get better. You can get worse. Like change is always coming, especially in the business world. In your life, change is always happening. Right? You're getting older. There's there's deaths in the family. There's, you know, circumstances that change. There's job loss. There's new jobs. There's kids. There's kids with issues. There's, you know, kids whose lives get busy. There's uh, there's always something that's coming that's going to change the status quo. And so when you spend all your time and energy just kind of trying to search for stability, you're always going to be disappointed. And you're always going to be chasing something that's really not an achievable goal. Instead, if you can spend the time developing kind of the mental tools and the actual like practical skills to adapt to when things change, you're going to be just so far better positioned for your life. Uh, The daily win. Daily win is we got season four spun up again. I have most of the show notes written for the episodes. They'll probably change as new things come up, but I at least have topics and some um, just basically a lot of the research for the episodes done. Spent quite a bit of time in the evenings over the last few weeks doing that. So pretty excited. It's nice to be in the studio again. Um, share the podcast with people. That would be my ask. If I'm going to record this and not do any ads, would just love to get you guys uh, sharing it and, and emailing in for any questions you have. And then the daily learning lesson is time goes so much faster than you expect. Uh, don't waste any of it. And this always reminds me of a quote my grandma used to say. And I didn't really understand it um, when I was young. Because I remember, I think she told it to me when I was like 12. And I always just, it always comes back in my mind. But now that I'm um, getting older, it I start to understand it a little bit more. Is um, Life is like a roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. And it's really true. I mean, I think my 35th or 36th year went faster than my 15th year, and which went faster than my 10th year and went faster than my fifth year on this planet. And it's really crazy how fast time goes. Like, I think, you know, just how quickly the years pass, how quickly things just seem to go by is 
make sure you're doing what you really want your life to be because you're going to wake up and that time's going to pass and you're going to wish you had done the things you had. So I would say, you know, in 2024 is really just think about the fact that time goes faster than you expect. You actually don't know how much time you have. Like tomorrow could be the last day. 20 years could be the last day. 40 years could be the last day. And if you break that down to like how many actual days you have left, it's very small, right? Like when you see, oh, even if I live to 90, let's see for me, that would be, I only have 20,000 days left. You're like, um, that's really not that many, right? Think about how fast $20,000 can go with taxes and all sorts of crazy stuff, right? Like life's the same. Um, and if you even think about it in that, like, hey, let's say you say you make $20,000, you lose 30% to taxes. Okay, so now you're at 14. Well, if you have 20,000 days, you got to take, okay, at least a third of those I'm going to be sleeping. So I only have 14,000 days. Okay, well, a third of that's going to probably be at work. Oh, shit. Okay, well, now I only have 8,000 days. Like, um, that's not very many days to live the life you want to live. So time goes much faster than you expect. Don't waste any of it. That's episode one of season four. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Share the pod. Find us at macrozinc.net. Um, you can find me on Instagram. Shoot me an email, brad.deter at macrozinc.net. Let me know what you thought of the pod. Let me know if you're excited that it's back. Um, I'm Dr. Brad. I'll see you guys later.